Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be following on from our earlier episode on uh, cocaine and talking a bit about some of the acute toxicities with regards to cocaine, as well as some of the metabolites of cocaine and some of the uh, adulterants that are used or mixed in with cocaine. So Fergal, what are the three common metabolites of cocaine? Yeah, so I suppose when you're talking about metabolites, you also need to think about the kinetics. So if we just go through the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and then I suppose excretion, we can talk about the metabolites in that context. So we know that the bioavailability of smoked or inhaled cocaine is over 80 to 90%, but we're not really sure what the oral bioavailability is because it's not really used orally, is it? The problem with um, with cocaine's uh, bioavailability via mucosal surfaces is that because it's also a potent vasoconstrictor, that action in itself delays its Tmax, so the delays the peak rate of absorption. Um, it's it's metabolized by the liver by various enzymes, and it has got various active metabolites, which we'll discuss in a second. And then it's, um, it's got urinary excretion of some of those metabolites. Uh, there's also some uh, excretion through other mechanisms. So um, we've got, if we go to the metabolites, we've, the two main ones are benzylagonine and methylagonine. Benzylagonine is the metabolite that is excreted in urine. And when we're doing urine drug screens, that's what we're actually testing for. Methylagonine is found in plasma. Um, there's another, another metabolite, which is the metabolite of an interaction called a transesterification reaction, and that interaction is, occurs between alcohol and cocaine. And when you get that reaction in the body, you end up with a product called cocaethylene. Now, if we go to half-life, the half-life of uh, cocaine is about 90 minutes. Half-life in plasma is about 90 minutes. The, the cocaethylene's half-life is very prolonged, but it is equally as toxic in terms, of its, in terms of its ability to vasoconstrict and therefore cause ischemia, strokes and heart attacks. So you have this exposure to a prolonged risk if you co-ingest alcohol and cocaine. So you get the side effects or the risk of, of side effects of cocaine, but it's much more prolonged. There's another couple of metabolites. Uh, there's one called Andromethylagonine, and there's another metabolite called norcocaine. I suppose uh, if we go back to the the metabolites again, I mean, if we're, I'm just checking some notes here just to uh, make sure I'm not saying anything wrong. But benzylagonine it does the vasoconstriction, and so remember, you know, we're talking about the toxicity of vasoconstriction causing ischemia, strokes, and heart attacks, and cocaine-associated chest pain. Benzylagonine is not a psychostimulant. It's just, it just causes side effects, doesn't make you feel great at all. Methylagonine is a vasodilator and an anticonvulsant, so it's actually you know, good for you. And androagonine methyl ester is a muscarinic agonist and causes bronchoconstriction. And as I've already said, cocoethylene causes vasoconstriction, but at a much more prolonged time frame because it's got a longer half-life. Than cocaine. That's fascinating, Fergal. And it's really important to, to 
emphasize as well, especially talking about coca ethylene. I've seen some some numbers where uh, we t- we talked about how how quick cocaine's action is, but I've seen some numbers where coca ethylene can hang around the body for around 13 hours or so. So it really yeah. is that prolonged exposure to yeah. a, a toxic substance um, that can cause significant harm to people. So that combination yeah. of alcohol and cocaine really is a lethal combination. So that, that begs the question then, right? And I, I get asked this frequently. What's the safest way of coming off a cocaine high? So if we're looking at a harm reduction model, how do you come off a cocaine high? Because a lot of people use alcohol for that purpose. They get high on cocaine and then when they want to calm down, they drink alcohol. So what do you say? What's the safest way of coming off a cocaine high if you're going to avoid alcohol? If you're going to avoid alcohol, I think in a supervised setting or with medical supervision, one could use benzodiazepines as one does with um, other stimulant medications such as methamphetamines. Mm. So that would potentially be uh, a, a, a medication that I would, I would utilize in this setting as well. One should also remember that the, the half-life of cocaine, as we've mentioned in, in, in the previous episode of cracking addiction, is also quite, quite small. So essentially one could also just manage it symptomatically and just treat the symptoms that one sees during the withdrawal. Yeah. So you're giving the medical model, right? Mm-hmm. So I get asked by, by patients, so when I'm at a party, doc, and I'm high as a kite on cocaine and I want to calm down, and you're telling me, doc, not to drink alcohol, what other illicit drug can I take to come off a of cocaine high safely? So I say illicit benzos is the first choice, and then secondly, cannabis. So I'd rather someone use illicit benzos with somebody else, of course, to never use on your own. That would be the first rule of harm reduction. But if you're going to use a drug and you want to come off a cocaine high, illicit benzodiazepines and then illicit cannabis. Those, those, as far as I'm concerned, from a harm reduction model, those are the two methods that I encourage to come off a cocaethylene, sorry, to come off a cocaine high because you're avoiding alcohol and you're avoiding the toxicity associated with cocaethylene. So I, as a doctor and as an addiction specialist, am recommending people to take illicit drugs. <laughs> what do you think of that? I think from a harm reduction uh, point of view, one really has to look at what, what one's trying to achieve. And we've talked about this in previous episodes and also on episodes when we discussed harm reduction. Harm reduction is about reducing harm. And if one can reduce harm, it doesn't eradicate harm, but if one can decrease potential severe effects, you have to speak the patient's language and also utilize tools that the patient has available to them. So you have to be practical in addiction medicine. I think you really have to kind of meet the patient where where they're at in in many situations. Now, I guess segueing a bit from this and talking, I guess, about some of the, the, the acute toxicities of cocaine and I guess going through some of those clinical manifestations, we, we touched a bit on on some of these in the previous episode, but just to reinforce this, could, could you tell us, Fergal, again, what some of the, those cardiac and neurological manifestations of cocaine yeah. toxicity could be? Because so, those are quite important for us to, to re-emphasize and be aware of. So I think I, th- I think of cocaine toxicity as three, or- mainly, but not exclusively, mainly three organ systems, the brain, the heart, the lungs, right? So when, we've got, uh, when we're thinking about the brain, we've got to understand that cocaine is a vasoconstrictor. So you get all the side effects of cerebral vasoconstriction, strokes, strokes basically, or, or uh, you know, infarcts. 
TIAs. You've also got to understand that cocaine is a stimulant. So it has, it's associated with a hyperglutaminergic state. So seizures, hypothermia, right? So really fundamentally strokes, seizures, and hypothermia. That's, that's what I think of. Now, of course, when you're thinking about hypothermia and psychomotor agitation, you also then have to start thinking about rhabdomyolysis, which is the melting away of muscles, and then, of course, renal toxicity. So that's the segue to renal. And then when we think about the heart, we think about vasoconstriction again, and we think about this condition known as cocaine-associated chest pain. And, of course, when we're thinking about cocaine-associated chest pain, there's a couple of things to say about that. First of all, the ECG changes of ischemia that we would normally interpret as, as, having, as, as, as being associated with someone having a heart attack, i.e. ST changes or, or Q waves, etc., etc. These occur in cocaine-associated chest pain without cellular damage. So even though you might have ischemia or, or, or infarct changes on an ECG, you cannot rely on those changes to make a diagnosis of myocardial infarction in the context of cocaine-associated chest pain. You have to use, or you have to have enzyme evidence or enzyme rises. And the second point to say about that is, you know, we would use beta blockers as part of our management of angina or hypertension, right? You shouldn't use beta blockers in the context of cocaine-associated chest pain because if you do use beta blockers, then you've got this unopposed alpha-adrenergic activity, which even which worsens the vasoconstriction and makes things worse. So again, we're going back to the use of benzodiazepines as first line for cocaine-associated chest pain. So we've talked about the brain, then the heart, and then the, leg, the next organ is um, the lungs. So of course, then we've got crack lung. So when we're talking about the damage to the lungs, we're talking about inhaling crack of freebase. And of course, then you can have spontaneous pneumothorax. Then you can have spontaneous pneumopericardium. Then you can have um, spontaneous mediast uh, pneumomediastinum. So you can have these spontaneous pneumo diseases. Then you have uh, crack lung itself, which is an inflammatory alveolitis or a hemorrhagic alveolitis. And then, of course, as I've already said, um, some of the metabolites of cocaine are also potent vasoconstrictors. So um, methylagonine uh, is a potent vaso uh, sorry, bronchoconstrictor. Indeed. And I think it's one of those things where those are a lot of organ systems that have been listed and that can be affected. And we've also mentioned the, the risks of um, cocaine exposure while a woman's pregnant and the risks of uh, placental abruption, intrauterine mm. growth retardation, yeah. um, growth restriction for the fetus. And also, uh, Fergal, you mentioned in the earlier episode of how uh, one of the medical uses of cocaine was as a, as a midriatic, so a pupil dilating agent as well. And there's always risks of acute closure uh, acute angle closure glaucoma with those agents. So mm. again, it's, it's pretty much one of, those, uh, one of those drugs that could potentially cause complications everywhere there's, there's yeah. a blood supply and, and, and blood vessel uh, issues and as well as yeah. organ system issues. Yeah, that's a good point about the, the womb. The, uh, the uteroplacental circulation is not auto-regulated, so it's entirely dependent on um, blood pressure and so therefore it's very sensitive to uh, vasoconstrictors, including cocaine. Um, and of course it does then, as it is associated with placental abruption. And, and, and of course subject also to uh, secondary to the vasoconstriction, you've got this IUGR, the intrauterine yes. growth retardation.
And I guess what we've done is we've talked about cocaine itself, but we haven't actually talked about any of the adulterants or cutting yeah. agents that are associated with cocaine. Yeah. And usually there's, there's, there's three common ones, and we'll go through them one by one. Yeah. But we'll start off, I guess, Fergal, with, with levemisole, which is an antiparasitic medication normally, but yeah. it's frequently um, uh, cut with cocaine. And it's got quite a few complications associated with it. Would you yeah. care to elaborate on, on those yeah. complications? So levamisole is actually, uh, it's an anti-helminthic, but it's also used in, in colorectal cancer. It's a chemotherapeutic agent for colorectal cancer. And for some reason, it is actually used to cut down cocaine powder. And I don't actually know why. Do you know why levamisole is used as a cutting agent? I don't, to yeah. be honest. So anyway, it is nonetheless used as a cutting agent, and I'm presuming it's basically because it looks the same uh, when it's crushed up. It looks the same as cocaine powder, and so therefore you can dilute the uh, the, the cocaine and you know sell more gram for gram. Uh, but of course, it's associated with toxicity, and the two main toxicities that I, that, that I worry about when I think about levamisole as a cutting agent are firstly a granulocytosis and b small vessel vasculitis. So it can knacker your immune response. You're more prone to um, infections and you can get these vasculitic conditions. So your blood vessels, your small blood vessels get inflamed and that can cause bruising and internal organ damage, including renal damage. So, yeah, that's levamisole. Are, are there any other harms for, that uh, you're aware of with uh, levamisole? So levamisole, I always struggle with that word, uh, can also cause um, a vasculitis as well, and it can cause skin ulceration and necrosis as well. Yeah, yeah. And it can also cause leukoencephalopathy, which is essentially a white matter disease of the brain. So yeah. those have been other associations. But yeah. agranulocytosis, as you've mentioned, is, is a life-threatening um, condition mm. potentially. It really can depress one's immune system, and it can be fatal if it's not yeah. treated. So. There's a lot of significant yeah. complications with levamisole. So just to summarize, so we've got uh, a granulocytosis, which is a reduced white cell count. We've got the vasculitis, which is, can affect any organ system, in, in particular the kidneys. And we've got leukoencephalopathy, which is a disease of white matter. So those, those are the pathologies associated with levamisole. What's the next, the dulterin that is commonly used? The next one is, is a, a beta agonist called clenbuterol. Uh, again, it, it's, it's a, a common adulterant. And I, I guess the common side effects or interactions I've, I've seen with clenbuterol or read up on clenbuterol are mainly those related with, with hyperglycemia and hypokalemia. Are, yeah. are you aware of any other significant issues with clenbuterol? Um, well, it's, it's, it's used or it's misused as a cutting agent amongst bodybuilders. Now, when, when bodybuilders use cutting agents, they're not talking about diluting cocaine. They're talking about stripping the fat off them. So what? So clenbuterol, there's a theory that clenbuterol has a partial activity in stimulating lipolysis in, um, in fat cells. And so that's why bodybuilders will use it to try and get really, really reduced fat content so they get you know heightened uh, musculature. Um, so th that's why that, that's the other reason why in, uh, that's the other reason by which clenbuterol uh, is misused. Now, in terms of cutting agents, it can also theoretically induce lipolysis, but that's not the bigger the biggest issue. The two main things are the hyperglycemia and the hypokalemia. Now, I mean, a high sugar is you know is not that serious, but a low potassium can have serious consequences. Would you care to elaborate on that? Uh 
potassium, if, if we remember nothing else, can cause heart arrhythmias. So we really do need to be aware that yeah. this can cause um, cardiac arrhythmias. And we already have mentioned um, cocaine by and of itself can predispose someone to heart arrhythmia. So yeah. basically you've got two agents that are, that are acting uh, yeah. in concert to affect your heart. So one yeah. does have to be super careful with, with regards to this. So why, let's just clarify that. Why does cocaine cause heart arrhythmias? There's, there's two mechanisms for that. So it's a sodium channel blocker, and it also, re -up, uh, it also inhibits the reuptake of, of noradrenaline and dopamine. Yeah, all right. So that, those two effects actually increase the arrhythmogenicity of the heart, so it predisposes to heart rhythm. And then, you, of course, you throw into the mix a little potassium, and then you're getting a recipe for disaster there, aren't you? Indeed you are. Yeah. And I guess if we were to go to probably the last common adulterant, possibly one of the most dangerous mm. when used with cocaine. Mm. And we're probably talking about fentanyl here. And yeah. there have been numerous cases, particularly in the media, of, of cocaine being cut with fentanyl. Could you explain to us, Fergal, why this is so dangerous and why it is life-threatening? So I suppose we need to go back a little bit because, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was really common to inject heroin and cocaine together. And that was known as speedballing. And so there's been always this underground movement of really playing around with substances. So fentanyl, as we both know, is a synthetic opioid. So it's much more potent than heroin. Um, now fentanyl, uh, I mean, there are a number of reasons why you would want to cut fentanyl or you would, you would want to use fentanyl to cut cocaine. So firstly, uh, it's it's produced in synthetically and it produced in massive quantities. So I'm sure there's economies of scale where it's actually cheaper to produce fentanyl than it is to produce cocaine. So therefore, if you adulterate cocaine with fentanyl, you get a more cost-effective product. But from a dynamic point of view, fentanyl is a very potent mu agonist. So if you're going to take, if you want to get uh, high on, on on an opioid, fentanyl is a great opioid to get high on. But the half-life of fentanyl is up to eight to nine hours, right? Whereas the half-life of um, cocaine, as we've already said, is only 90 minutes, one and a half hours. So again, remember we are talking about how to come off a cocaine high. So, you know, you want the depressants. After you've had the stimulation, you want to be depressed. So that's why, you know, if you're taking cocaine, which is a stimulant, you're high, you, you take the safest thing to take is a benzodiazepine to get down again. But if you think about the half-lives of, of cocaine and fentanyl, if you take your mixture, you get high in the cocaine, which only lasts 90 minutes or so. And then you have this prolonged depressive or opioid-induced depression due to the prolonged action of the fentanyl. So that then, I suppose, mimics the, the high and the low that you want when you're using illicit substances. So there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a, an economic reason why you would use fentanyl, and also there's a dynamic reason why you'd want to use fentanyl. That being said, however, fentanyl, as we all know, is very, very toxic and is, 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 is really part of the opioid epidemic that is now ravaging both the United States and now also Australia. So, we, you know, as you say, Philippe, fentanyl is probably the most dangerous adulterant that we, that we know about. Indeed. And as we've mentioned, it, it can lead to people being unaware sometimes that they've got uh, fentanyl mixed in with their cocaine mm -hmm. and it can lead to opioid overdose, respiratory yeah. depression and yeah. death, which... Yeah. Is 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 um, so. Is it's such a, a an unforgiving drug, fentanyl, uh, yeah. and it's so potent. 
So I guess, Virgil, we've talked a lot today about the acute toxicities with regards to cocaine. We've talked about the metabolites of cocaine, the different organ systems cocaine mm. affects, and the adulterants um, that are commonly mixed in with cocaine and the complications associated with, with that mixture. So it's been another uh, action-packed episode of Cracking Addiction. Thanks for your attention and for joining us on this episode. And please do remember to like and subscribe to both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Thank you once again, and bye for now.